Thanks for tuning in, guys. You're listening to Ace Comicals. I'm Greg Driver. I'm joined by Rahul Johnny and Leon Everett. Let's go! Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 80 of Ace Comicals. And today we have with us a special guest. And that is Vicky Madden, or Dr. Vicky Madden now. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the introduction. <laughs> yeah, so um, Vicky was last with us when we discussed uh, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. I think that was like season one we did, wasn't it? Yes, um, it was a while ago. I'm not entirely sure how long, but it was, um, it's been a while. <laughs> it was all the way back in November of 2018, which was episode 48. For those of you who want to go back and reference that, you can go find it in our back catalogue. Yeah, we had a, a very interesting discussion about the uh, the first season of Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, which was uh, really cool. And we're on season three now. So has anyone started watching that yet? I was just watching it before joining you guys, um, but I'm not very far into it. And it's, it's interesting. A lot of cosmic horror going on. So not entirely unrelevant to today. Yeah, I watched, uh, I've seen like, the first episode and part of the second episode of it i think so i'm not really very far through it but the first episode's got like this whole wizard of oz vibe (laughs) which i thought was pretty fun um yeah so i mean as always i've got ray and leon with me as co-hosts evening all hello hello and uh today we are doing a Junji Ito centric episode. So the goal of today is to discuss Junji Ito's unique brand of horror and his work in comics and manga, and uh, just to have fun with uh, some of the uh, crazy weirdness that he has committed to the page over the years, over the last thirty years, in fact. So um, I just start by basically saying that Junji Ito's work is rather famous and for the uninitiated this is the man who has produced some of the most critically acclaimed horror manga to date which have been adapted for television and into numerous films and animated features I mean I guess you could have even seen some of these without realizing Um, because recently there's been an anime series as well hasn't there that adapts some of his short stories um In 2019, he received an Eisner for his manga adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And he was also nominated in 2003 for the best U.S. edition of foreign material. And that was for Uzumaki, uh, which is something that um, we read and we'll get onto later on in this cast. Um, I guess his career in manga has spanned the last 30 years, and I suppose we and many others would regard him as one of the modern masters of horror, especially where sequential art is concerned. So um, before we get really, really deep in and in, into the point of no return with the Junji Ito stuff, uh, does anyone have anything they want to get out of the way and off their chest? First of all, um, things they might've been watching things. They may. Um, I thought it has, have any of you seen Parasite? Yes, I have I indeed. Um, yeah, that was my, that was just my, my film. I just watched it recently. So that was my film of 2019. Um, but I don't know if that really feeds into anything we're going to talk about today. I thought it might, but, (laughs) but maybe not. No, I, I I would say it does. There's a lot of, um, 
connections you could make um, between the two. Um, <laughs> I guess, well, the, the main setup of... It's hard to talk about Parasite because it's mm. a thing that I would recommend people going completely blind. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you and I were just talking about this at the weekend, Leon, about how um, going in blind was the best way to do it because based on who the director is and his body of work and the title of the film, not knowing anything about it, as as you put it, the film could be anything. You have no idea what you're getting from that movie. And I think it really subverted my expectations. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> uh, I should say uh, a, a very broad overview would be that you 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 start the film with a family who you could say are on the uh, lower end of the of the economic uh, ladder. You could say, and um, the film broadly is about their interactions with a well-to-do. Uh, upper middle class rich family and uh in the old parlance of like movie posters and stuff um hilarity ensues and all around weird and craziness ensues but i'd honestly uh go into it blind as possible yeah i would would agree with that yeah sorry sorry i was was just gonna say like i i've been almost a hermit recently like i've not been to the cinema at all i've not seen any of these films basically we just a, a peek behind the curtain on the run sheet um ray has made a heading with a uh, brief movie oscar other medium talk and i know nothing about any of this because i live under a rock i haven't seen parasite i haven't seen the farewell and i haven't seen cats well i mean parasite was hard to to view it was it had like one or two maybe really um, like short run screenings in London, so I had to like run to catch that. But otherwise, I don't think it would be easy to have seen yet. Yeah, Judging I think from... it hits the UK fully on wide release on the seventh of February, I believe. Mm. Cool. Judging from what people have been saying, Cats is basically a horror movie, right? With the weird special effects and everything else. <laughs> That's precisely yeah. the reason I put it on the list. It sounds like <laughs> it sounds like a trippy <laughs> head fuck. It's terrible. I am um, well. I was. Um, not going to say how I was watching this, but I found a copy and whatever you think it might be, if you haven't seen it, it is about 10 times worse. <laughs> it is honestly an abomination. And I I don't know how this got made. I don't know like how it happened that no one in the studio questioned this. And everyone thought this would be a good idea. It is just, it's like probably scarier, I think, in terms of visuals <laughs> than like anything I've seen this year, including um, Midsummer, um, Hereditary of the year before. It is just like your trippiest fever dream um, mixed with, I, I don't know. It's it's just it's it's the, it's the costuming. I mean, even even on Broadway, they knew to make the noses cat-like, right? But in the film, they just leave them as human noses. And there's something so abhuman about that weird anthropomorphic, like people in cat suits, but like they've got fluffy ears. It's just horrendous. I can't. Cats, yeah. cats, with, creep, cats with creepy faces, <laughs> a la Yon and Moo, which we'll get onto later again in this cast. But yeah. <laughs> the only thing I've seen of cats in the trailers, it, it has that thing where it looks like it punches the uncanny valley right in the face. 
yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It feels like it's got, it's got a nice, weird parallel to Junji Ito because it's like how there's a lot of people out there who may never have read Junji Ito's body of work or, you know, have never really read manga, but they will, there's a high percentage chance that just by being like existing on the internet, they'll have seen some of the, you know, like the mimetic images that have come out of his work. And I feel like Katz is doing the same thing where I don't think I'm going to go watch that film, but I've seen some of the messed up stuff and that people have been screenshotting and passing around on Twitter. Oh yeah. It's like, the sorry. <laughs> sorry. No, carry on. It's, that's my fault. <laughs> no, no. It's just like, it's one of those things where like, like, like a lot of Jinji Ito's work, I guess it's just kind of like, it's gotten away from the source and it's, it's kind of developed a life of its own now and, mm. you know, in popular culture. And I, I just like people using, like, do you see that, that thing where someone had like uh, dubbed over um, the trailer music from us over the cat trailer? Uh, yeah, yeah. It worked brilliantly. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> it was probably my favorite thing of last year. I was just like, this just works so well <laughs> so in its afterlife cats has just become i think the horror movie of 2019 <laughs> yeah i've seen the trailer and it looks like the um i swear in some places the faces kind of like are like unattached to the bodies so like when when you see the faces move, it's almost like they go off center slightly because they're superimposed over the weird cat bodies or whatever. And it's just like the faces kind of come off the bodies. I don't know. It's weird. I know what you mean. And I think it's, it's like, it's with, with the dancing, there's a lot of like, I think isolations involved in like the, the ballet moves. And it just looks like their faces are just kind of wrong because cats bodies obviously don't move that way. And it's, I don't know, for some reason, like this musical was one of my favorites when I was little and I didn't, this is before I think I, I had an understanding of what the uncanny was, because the musical itself is quite uncanny. Um, but it didn't offend me in such a way as to put me off. But the film, for some reason, I'm just it just gives me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> like, I, I love the word offend in this context. Like, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's offensive to the senses. It really is, though. And you know what? What was the worst part is like there's this bit where Rebel Wilson's cat like unzips her skin. Oh, she, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've seen like, that. Yeah, I've seen that in the kit. <laughs> it's very Jinji Ito, though, in that sense of just like, why do you have more skin underneath? <laughs> it's, it's terrifying. I don't. Yeah, no, I don't like it. <laughs> so um, let's let's just hope that Disney don't take a cue out of this. But with the recent slew of live actions, Disney have been sort of like churning out and do something similar to this with Aristocats or something like that. Well, Don't give them ideas. <laughs> I think it's, there is like an, uh, an avenue for, for that type of uh, thing because this is a living movie, isn't it? It had DLC updates straight to the cinema because they hadn't finished the VFX on it. So yeah, graphics patches. Like, yeah, exactly. This is something oh, I could man. see Disney doing now that they're going to conquer the world using Disney+. Plus. I, I could see that happening. Day one movie patches. I want a whole film where every single line of dialogue is replaced by the word McClunky. <laughs> you could make that yourself. <laughs> I'm sure somebody will. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Uh, I guess we should move on now because we've already been kind of hinting at it and um, I've already introduced it. So I guess we should move on and kind of get into the thick of what this podcast was actually going to be about, which was Junji Ito's work. So um, before we do that, I should introduce our guest properly. So we have with us Vicky Madden today. Um, 
PhD in Gothic literature? Yes, very recently inaugurated PhD. Um, but it still stands. So. Yeah, I mean, this... This was meant to be the first episode of the year, but then what we did was we decided to delay it so that uh, Vicky could finish her PhD defense and get all of that out of the way and speak to us freely and without stress when we were doing this. So um, you are, yeah, so you've finished it. You've um, you've got no corrections, I think you were saying before we started recording. Yeah, it's done. Yeah. I wasn't I wasn't expecting that at all, but it's just the, the best possible outcome. Like they told me I had no corrections and I just burst into tears because it was just the, the culmination, I think, of, of four years of me looking at my computer screen and, and thinking, what am I doing with my life? So, yeah, exciting. <laughs> yeah, congratulations. Thank you. And uh, yeah, um, so how do you like now that it's all over, how have you been spending your time? What have you been up to? Um, I'm still slightly traumatized, I think, um, from the process. So I keep trying to read things and then giving up like 20 pages in because I'm like, I'm not enjoying this yet. Um, and I don't know when I'm going to start enjoying reading for pleasure again. But rereading some Jinji Ito, I think that was a really good way of, kind of rediscovering my my love of, of reading and stuff because it's just so easy to just, just finish a novel like in like half an hour I think it took me to read like Geo uh, the first book and um just read it kind of over my lunch and it was it's great it's been it's it's been nice to to not have like the thesis or corrections or anything hanging over my head which is you know the first time in a very long time that I've had that freedom just like the lifting of an enormous weight oh yeah <laughs> which I'm, I'm guessing is like 10 times whatever I've felt when I finished high school exams and things like that but yeah <laughs> Um, so on to the main event. So each of us have kind of like, we've all read like a different collection of things as far as, cause Junji Ito, he's, his career has spanned like 30 years and there's like a lot of different within that. He's done a lot of different short stories, a lot of, a lot of different things. And I think, I think we've actually got a cr- quite a good cross section across all of us, haven't we? looking at it so if we just sort of run through what each of us has read in um preparation for this cast so i will start and i have read uh joe the sad tale of the principal post uh the enigma of amigara fault which is probably one of his most famous ones um this is the one that people tend to meme a lot on the internet so if you see any uh memes with like manga artwork people climbing into holes in mountains then that's where it's from um uzumaki uh which was my favorite one actually uh junjito's cat diary uh yonamu uh frank his adaptation of mary shelley's frankenstein which is actually really really good and uh next specter um ray do you want to go next uh yeah uh let me just pull up my list hang on uh, so the big, uh, the big novel that I read was, and I need, I'm sorry to be a bit of a weeb and point out yours and Vicky's tra- uh, pronunciation, but it's gyo, which means fish in Japanese. Um, so I read gyo. Uh, I read the sad tale of the principal post, which is attached to the end of that. The enigma. Sorry, of- Ray, can I, can I just interrupt you very slightly? You know, when you, when you corrected us, did you adjust your glasses? I did with my, uh, <laughs> with my index finger and then the, the, like the translucency like flashed white as I did it. It was very cool, I assure you. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I read The Sad Tale of the Principal Post, The Enigma of Amigara Fault, 
um, Red Turtleneck, I think was the the title of that one, um, The Hanging Balloons, The Window Next Door, The Ice Cream Bus, The Unbearable Labyrinth, and The Face Burglar. And uh, most of those were short stories from one of his other series. I can't remember what it's called. I mean, like, I've seen some of the anime as well, and I can't remember which one of these have and haven't been adapted. Um, because, mm. I mean, Gyo got adapted, didn't it? Gyo had, a like, an OVA animated feature. I, I wouldn't know, actually. I didn't check out any of the animation for this. I, I wasn't aware that there was um, any, any uh, what's the word? Yeah. Like, filmmaking done of this well, until recently. Yeah. Gyo has a live-action film, I believe, as well. Uzumaki ah, has okay. a live-action as well. Um, and Uzumaki's getting another live action this year, isn't it? I did see uh, something about, hang on, I've got a note here, which says that uh, Adult Swim are going to be doing a four-part episode miniseries of Uzumaki uh, later this year. Yeah. Well, we can talk um, about that later. Yeah. And um, also, just to point out, Junji Ito uh, like, was going to be part of the... like dream team super group that we're going to make silent hills r.i.p you ever hear about that <laughs> let's let's not talk about that that's a really sad <laughs> tale <laughs> he was like he was there with the rest of these like evil geniuses but yeah um leon what do you read uh i read or reread uh uzumaki uh tomi uh Gyo. And the two short stories at the end of Gyo, which are The Sad Tale of Principal Post and The Enigma of Amagara Fort. Uh, I read Voices in the Dark. Uh, I'll probably focus any comments particularly on uh, uh, Glyceride. And I read Fragments of Horror, focusing on uh, Futon and uh, Lingering Farewell. Um, Voices in the Dark and Fragments of Horror are like anthology books that um, cover, um, contain a lot of uh, Ito's um, short stories. And uh, Vicky, what did you read? Um, so I read Uzumaki a long time ago. Um, Ray, thank you for helpfully pointing out um, that <laughs> um, the only Asian here has uh, mispronounced um, Gyo. Um, but uh, <laughs> reread that one um, and read Tomi is actually one of my favorites. Um, didn't get to get a chance to reread it, um, but would love to talk about it just because it's like I find that gender kind of aspect of it very interesting. Um, did get a chance to reread Junji Ito's Cat Diary and um, reread my fa- favorite short story, I think, from Fragments of Horror called Blackbird. So with the bird woman, it's quite it's quite a good one. But um, oh. yeah, we, we we own most of whatever he's written that's been translated into English. I think my husband's reading his newest one at the moment. I can't remember what it's called, but he's just got like, we, we saw that there was one on, on Amazon that's just been released, but I think it's an adaptation of someone else's story. But he's reading that in the moment and he says it's weird and not sure he's enjoying it. <laughs> um, yeah, so <clears throat> Leon, have you ever seen any of the adaptations? Because you're a film guy. Have you actually watched any of them or? No, I haven't because uh, I'm a film guy, but I'm not a big fan of a lot of uh, like manga adaptations into live action. Uh, the few that I've dabbled in, um, it was mostly via having watched an anime and watching the live action. I've not been uh, too much a fan of even the ones that have got a lot of critical acclaim. They've really done it for me. Um, but it was weird because technically, uh, there being a Gyo film, the Gyo film uh, is what um, 
would have been my earliest uh, introduction to uh, Junji Ito. But the thing is, I just didn't go with it. I was like, oh, there's this weird uh, fishy horror movie. I didn't know it was based on a manga. And it was some. It was being recommended by someone who had que- questionable tastes. And I was like, well, whatever. And it was only uh, a couple years later, maybe a year or two years later, where someone else introduced me to... Um, the Enigma of Amagara Fault, and then I was uh, right on the uh, Junji Ito train. Nice. Um, so Glyceride is the one with the fat and the pimples on the guy's face, isn't it? And he squeezes them and... Yeah, all the grease. Yeah, the grease one, yeah. All the grease. I saw that as an, I saw that in the anime. That's like one of the ones I watched, one of the episodes. I think there was that one and the one with the incredibly distinctive looking model, which I can't remember the name of that story. Oh, I think it's just called Fashion Model, isn't it? Maybe, yeah. The Is one that... where, yeah, she's, she kind of looks like a Modigliere painting. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I think, yeah, we found that one the other day because I quite like that one too. Yeah, it was that and um, Glyceride that I saw as... Uh, as anime from the recent sort of anime adaptations that because it was like it was like an ongoing tv series where they were like adapting his short stories and that was kind of cool so um where do you guys want to kick this off let's kick this off with the sort of like what it is that makes this horror unique so for me um i think one like the uniqueness of his of his horror stories is the fact that it kind of blends what's traditionally japanese horror and traditionally like very western horror concepts together quite well like there's nothing um because although it is japanese horror there's nothing like super overtly japanese about some of it like a lot of the body horror stuff that he gets into as well um for me feels very western um, I don't know how you guys feel about that. And it's also the fact, the way that he takes something completely innocuous and takes it to the nth level and turns that into something horrifying. Like uh, a good example of that is with uh, Uzumaki because it's just a spiral. It's a shape, you know, it's, it's a abstract concept. And then he manages to make that into something that's, you know, horrible. <laughs> horrifying like cosmic this this cosmic evil that the the spiral the, this cosmic malevolence that malevolence that the spiral represents so i mean like how do you guys view that as in like his actual brand of horror like is it do you do you kind of feel like i do about it or do you think it's like i um definitely like there's obvious western influence in his work particularly the things to do with cosmic horror and um, everything that stems off that. Um, but I would say that there is a definite Japanese-ness to the stories or uh, his application of certain ideas and themes. It, it While uh, the core concepts are universal... I would say that they do speak to things in the, uh, the Japanese psyche in particular, uh, things to do with the past and the different uh, like traditions and mores of Japanese culture. 
I would yeah. um I, I I would agree with Leon actually. I think um for me, like his brand of horror is weird. Like as in like the, the genre of weird fiction. And you know, like that I think it would be a mistake to see that in isolation as like a Western tradition because really the Japanese tradition of like Japanese kaidan, I think in, in Chinese it's called guaitan, but like Japanese weird fiction predates a lot of what we think of as like Western weird stories. So I think to me it is it is very much like, yes, I can see the influence of Lovecraft, I can see the influence of Poe, but there's also like a very distinct, I think, Asian tradition that he's working within. Yeah, but it's not as uh, there is that Western influence there. It's not like he's um, entire because a lot of traditional. I mean, in my experience, a lot of traditional Japanese horror is like it's all it's it's mainly like the the ghost stories and that type of stuff. Um, but yeah, I don't know um, if yeah. I think the the older stuff, um, the stuff that's kind of quite closely related, um, traditional Chinese ghost stories is very weird you know like kind of dis- disembodied like body parts kind of thing like floating through the air and so i, I think in, in just just in terms of like the, the aesthetic and and how weird it gets like yeah. to me it recalls this kind of like very very old tradition which i suppose goes hand in hand with the lovecraftian tradition and, and just harking back at something that is like quite ancient and arcane and very hard to understand yeah um do you i mean ray what's your take on all this as well actually <laughs> yeah i think i i kind of know what you're getting at greg when you say that it's it's like quote unquote not so japanese because i think it's not he doesn't have a lot of stuff which is um making his own versions of established mythology i think but i'm glad that you brought up kaidan vicky because i think the stuff that i like the most is the stuff that is more like uh, quote unquote like weird i think the ones that um that really stick out to me are like uh, the unbearable labyrinth. I think one which is very steeped in there's a, a naturalism to it, but it's like a weird Buddhist monk ancient sort of story naturalism. I think those are the ones that I am more drawn to. It's like that, and also the thing that I prefer is like the short stories, which have the the Twilight Zone esque. Like it's a concept, and then he plays into that concept, and then doesn't spend too much time in it. It's sort of like the big reveal at the end of the book, and then it just ends. I think I like those where the lingering happens in your own head as opposed to it being drawn out into a whole novel. But that's, I think that's just my preference on these things. Mm, I would agree. I love, I love, I love that. You I think that's a really good um, comparison. Um, I, I quite like the things that he does that are kind of like short vignettes that don't make a whole lot of sense. And you're just kind of like, huh? So that was four pages. Like the, what's the one at the, at the back of, of Gio? Um, the first one, uh, the yeah. sad tale of P- Principal Post. Yes, that yeah. to me, it was just it was so funny in kind of a way, like a very kind of like tragic comedy um, sense, and that that I could almost see being like a, a Twilight Zone um, sketch, especially like now that Jordan Peele has kind of like rebooted the series, like I can see that working mm. potentially as like a as a as a short like twenty thirty minute kind of thing. Yeah, because yeah. that, that's one of my favorites. Actually, it's one of the ones I'd had on my list because, particularly because it's so short, none of it's explained. And it's like, uh, there's, there's the, the hint of a theme, or maybe that, and I didn't spend that long reading into it, but it's like the, um, the patriarch of the family is literally holding up the foundations of this house. And here's four pages on how that could be visually represented and how it's like darkly comic, but also darkly tragic. And then it ends. 
and but, like, I, and then yeah. it moves on to the Enigma of Amagora Fault, which is like deeply troubling and like unsettling, <laughs> and like you barely have time to to process just how messed up like a man being stuck under the pillar of foundation of his house is, and it's yeah, I kind of just love that stuff. Well, that it's, that the 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 sad tale of the principal post that um that was one of the ones that actually got me laughing out loud and that was because of the fact that you know it's just it's not explained he's just under the post also like, it came how? after like <laughs> 2 hours of reading gyor which is yeah like a descent into into horribleness and then you just really need slightly like, horribleness yeah really stinky horribleness and then you get like four pages of like a breath of fresh air and i think that was that was the perfect story to be put in the perfect place but, at the end of that book. You know, I just had like all these images in my head after re- like all these things, like these things that, that dads do, like when they just mess with <laughs> stuff for no reason. Like it's a brand new house, but they're just going to start like playing around with things and messing with things anyway. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what it brought to mind was Shaun of the Dead? Cause it's like, <laughs> it's the, it's the Junji Ito version of like the British dad going, Oh, I'll run it under a cold tap. Like it's just, yeah. <laughs> they find him under the house. He's like, no, don't worry. It's fine. I'll just die instead of going to all the trouble of going, you know, calling the ambulance or whatever. <laughs> it's, it's more so like if you try and move me, the house will fall down, isn't it? That's, that's what he says. Cause but he's, he's so, un- yeah, he's so immediately resigned to his fate. It's like, yeah, it's really funny. But that's also a theme that runs throughout Junji Ito's work, isn't it? Protagonists and characters being resigned to their fate. And even though maybe a choice will sit before them and they can go in either direction and they could, they could avoid something in some ways. They still, stay the path and they just carry on marching into madness especially with uzumaki because they know that you know they they have a chance at the very beginning because at the very beginning of the story it's still possible to leave the town and and (laughs) if all that stuff happened you'd still you'd want to try and leave the town wouldn't you you wouldn't (laughs) you wouldn't carry on and get stuck there um i think is it the uh I can't remember the name. Ah, uh, this is terrible because uh, I've read so much, and the names of the characters are starting to escape me. But the um, the young man in Uzumaki, the uh, main character's boyfriend, uh, Shuichi, was it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, he he he's the first person that notices there's something wrong. Um, and he like he actually has the idea of leaving and not coming back. He's like, let's just go to the next town and just never come back. And it's like, if they'd have just done that in the first place, they yeah. could have avoided all of it. <laughs> like, it's the equivalent of uh, going out of the front door, but instead uh, going up the stairs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Everyone's just, you know, just immediately resigned to their fate and they just carry on marching towards it. Yeah, because elements of it are like this like crippling inevitability and like... Um... I think it shares, or at least like a cousin of like the Call of the Void, that whole thing of um, giving in to impending doom and uh, yeah. let, letting intrusive thoughts uh, become, say, like a mental chorus where by obsessing over the thing because you've noticed it and you want to avoid it, uh, by letting it in, you it's begun to corrupt you already. Yeah, uh, And exactly. you see a lot of that. Where um, in the end, the char- characters end up surrendering their agency, um, and they, as you say, like they march towards uh, madness. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that just makes it so compelling sometimes to read, to carry on reading, because as much as it's 
it can appear it, it appear frustrating like uh why would you carry on doing that when you know that it's bad for you kind of thing it's still you know like you want to carry on and you want to see what happens and in a way you're almost glad that they stay the course because you want to see where this is going to lead because of the sort of culture of um escalation that he has in his books in his stories as well especially in in gyo and uzumaki like the escalation and the 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 sharpness of the upwards curve in how quickly things go absolutely like haywire is amazing um and uh yeah i mean it, to get a bit deeper into into i suppose uzumaki like the way just within that story particularly but like it's it's a good example actually of the way he does it but um throughout all of the stories i i've i've read actually like an overarching thing the way he manages to whip up such an oppressive atmosphere and his the way his art does that so i mean he even elevates and, and manages to put his indelible mark on existing tales and classics so with his frankenstein adaptation as well he manages to make it seem so oppressive and so dark. And it's to do with, I think, the way that he uses a lot of lines and a lot of shadows. Um, and he just manages to keep things like really claustrophobic, almost in the same way. Because it's different to like his his artwork is different, like the way that he seems to work. And, and use techniques within sequential art seems to me very different to the way a lot of other manga car work as in there's less it's less dynamic his work is definitely more static when i look at the panels and that like i was saying there's a lot of lines and a lot of shadow um in some of his more kind of like fully realized longer works and i, I and i think that kind of echoes some of the classic horror comics like classic black and white stuff um going back to like the 70s maybe and early 80s like if you think about um when we talked about eerie comics actually on a previous cast if you think about like eerie and and book and uh, magazines like that and some of the black and white art that was printed there um and how oppressive and how detailed that was. And I think it's the detail that makes it claustrophobic. Um, I don't know if you guys would agree with me on that. Yeah, because um, it's like texture as well, isn't it? Because um, for a lot of his books, especially the ones that I've read, uh, generally, generally, sorry, the uh, character faces and designs, they don't really have much shading. It's usually eyes, eyebrows the bottom bit of the nose and like a mouth and lips sometimes. Um, but what you, by doing that, there's a big focus on eyes when it comes to characters, faces and expressions and all the other line work is uh, meticulously used elsewhere. And often uh, it's, a, it's a weird pull, but you know, in Ren and Stimpy, Nickelodeon's Ren and Stimpy, and and they'd have a thing where oh, it's like, oh, 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 this is exactly something that I wanted to bring up, Leon. But carry on. Uh, you, well, it may, it may be, and it may not be, but it's the thing where that that show's generally animated in in a uh, more or less flat style, but then every now and again they'll do a close up on something, and it's always got the grossest, 
most hyper detailed style for that one frame that, or for that one shot that they show yeah. it for. And I, there's a lot of that throughout uh, Ito's work. It's usually something like um, Stimpy's butt or something, isn't it? Covered like in like, boils or, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's just horrible. But like, I was going to bring that up actually, because I was going to say like what he does is, I think it's a technique that works well for the type of horror he specializes. So it's a technique that I believe works well for body horror and, and some of the, like the grotesque stuff that he has within his stories. So like what he does is he builds up to it and then he, he does like this one, um, the, this one static panel, like he'll draw like an amazing ex, ex, uh, like static panel for, uh, for the end of a story um, good example of this is the end of chapter one of Uzumaki, which um, I actually thought was quite, I thought that was quite fun. I thought it was quite funny uh, where the father of Shuichi has managed to turn himself into a spiral. Um, by he bought like a special um, wicker basket and climbed in it and he's managed to like bend his body into a spiral because he's realized that he can express the spiral through himself. Um, but like he, um, the, just the, the shot of him inside the basket. And it's like, what he does is he builds up to it and then he gives you that. And it's like, he gives it space to breathe and it's in an insane amount of detail. And he's basically just saying, look at this. And he gives that image space to breathe amongst the page layout and with the other panels. It's usually a larger panel, which kind of like signals to you subliminally that that panel should last longer, like more time. And it sort of burns itself into your mind. It embeds itself and it burns itself into your mind and it will be there for the rest of the book. And it will just enhance the horror and the, the creepiness of what comes next. Because you've done on a head. flip as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's the, you, you turn and then boom, it's in your face. Boom, there it is. Yeah. Because you'll get, you'll get like the bottom of the page will be the other characters going, Oh my God, what is this? Like they're looking at it. You'll get their reactions first then you get what they're looking at and you always get with what, what they're looking at without fail. And that's what I love. Cause there's always a payoff. I actually get to see, I mean, as much as it's, it's horrific to look at, it's, you know, it, it, it kind of helps the story and it actually gives you a payoff and it helps maintain the kind of like atmosphere throughout. I think with the way he does that. Um, yeah, I think one of the most, uh, like, iconic touchstones if i was going to express to somebody what is so great about junji ito it would be that page flip thing that you mentioned leon because one thing i noticed is i read a bunch of this stuff online um, or on my ipad and then a bunch of his stuff on paper and i realized it was so much more effective for me on paper where you have i feel like he's he's very conscious very cognizant of the fact not just that the image he's going to reveal is on the next thing and you see it all in its you know in in its entirety in one go but also like the the corner of the page you're holding and the way that it's going to reveal stuff as you peel it from the bottom left to the top right and you know that that whole mechanic of turning the page i think he bears that in mind for a lot of those splash pages that he makes and like you get to see the reveal from one corner of the page to the top of the you know to the other end and i think that's he's really effective of that um with that which really puts him apart from other mangakas that i've read yeah um Vicky, so how do, how does all of this kind of sit with you? Um, I I love what just listening to what you guys are saying because it's all all stuff that I've kind of been very um 
conscious of as as I've been rereading Geo today. Um, but the the page flip is is he's so good at it. Like it it is so effectively done, and and you know the the pages where where you have like a, a full page or a full two pages of of this like very kind of striking image, very disturbing image as well. And like as you guys were talking, it's kind of like having a reread of him. Um, Bakhtin, <laughs> um, getting back into my thesis here, but like suddenly this image popped into my head of like um, what's what's her name, Kauri from from Geo, like just floating in the air, like on on like, um, the little mechanical legs and stuff like that. And I was just like, and her body's so bloated, and that image, I can't, I just can't get it out of my head. And it's it's so effective, and it just reminded me of like Bakhtin's um definition of, of the grotesque and carnivalesque, which is like the senile pregnant hag. And that that image for me is it's almost it's so it's so ridiculous. And yet for some reason it's so it's so effective in terms of like horror and, and it's it's something that, you know, like I feel like will seep into my nightmares kind of thing. Yeah, and I think that's actually like something else I was gonna bring up because he he kind of straddles the line between comedy and horror very well, doesn't he? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's it's so like so so many of the things like just like I'm so grossed out by this that you can't help but laugh. It's yeah. such it's such a funny reaction. Um cuz I don't I don't know that I've had that reaction to many other horror texts or like even even films or anything. I'm struggling to think of anything. It'll come to me later, but it's it's very effective. Well, I think the the nearest touchstone that I can think of in film is Sam Raimi who does like the horror comedy thing really well, but I think Sam Raimi uses the comedy as like deliberate relief in a lot of ways where I think um, the way I feel about Junji Ito's stuff is that it's comic in a way to trick you into like sub submiss sub ah, what's the word I'm looking for submissiveness so that you're then ready to be shocked again on the next page and I feel like it oscillates between horror and comedy a lot where it's like in a disarming way and like if anything you're um you're like opening yourself up to more horror because he's tricked you into laughing as opposed to wanting you to laugh, if that makes sense. Yeah, but it's, it's even downright to like down down to the downright ridiculousness of his of the overall concepts. Like Vicky was mentioning the uh in, in Gyo, the bloated bodies like with the legs and the gas. Like these giant people these people that are just turned into rotting balloons effectively that power these mechanical legs. Um, and like just the, just the ridiculous image of this like bloated body, like full of tubes, like something from, I don't know, like a tool music video or something. I don't know. Like, <laughs> and there it is. And it's just like the, the whole kind of like ridiculousness of that concept, like fish with legs, like the idea of fish with legs, like the concept of a shark walking on land alone, you know, yeah. or, um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's it is so ridiculous and it's it's so funny. But you see, like in in Gio where they go to the um, the circus, that's just like for for me. Um, I think my husband was saying that like he wasn't sure about that part because he thought it was a little bit too ridiculous. And I was like, I love that he's leaning into that kind of yeah. very actually neatly carnivalesque like layer of of, of this narrative where I, like who who thinks up this stuff? It was it was so left field. 
for me that I was just like, I don't, I don't know yeah. how your mind works, but I love it. And like the cannon with like, you know, shooting out all the bloated people. I was like, this is <laughs> so gross, but I love it so much. I think this is because he did a lot of, he did some, he did, he does gag manga as well. So he's had it before, like, yeah, so he did horror. So he does like, uh, like funny gag manga as well. So he kind of like blurs the lines between the two. Mm, um, I didn't know that, but that makes, that makes yeah. so much sense. Yeah, because yeah. like I think that I think the gag manga informs the horror in some of his mm-hmm. stuff, and that kind of like he's like kind of blurring the lines between horror and comedy a lot, and that actually is really really evident in uh, the Cat Diary. So, I love love the Cat Diary. I think that might be I my do. favorite thing. It is so funny, and it's just just the way he draws his fiance, and how like midway through he has to like draw her better because she like complains. It's just <laughs> so. I, there's something so genius about it and the thing is like yeah. the horror is actually it's so everyday that it, yeah. it leans into like the uncanny in such a way that it's just basically reality like you know dialed a little bit off kilter yeah and um, with with the cat with the skull on its back i was just i couldn't yeah. stop laughing because so much of it is so real and cats are are terrible anyway and, and was looking at my cat and i was just like <laughs> you do have superhuman strength <laughs> you know when they want something yeah. it's just it's so real and yet, well, at the like, same time, it's so effective as a horror narrative. Yeah, I mean, the superhuman strength thing. I remember my cats when I lived at um, the previous place before I, I'm where I am now. Um, we had like a, a cupboard that had like slats. It was like a ventilated cupboard. And that was like kind of like a pantry slash store cupboard in the kitchen. And that's where we used to keep the cat food. And they had worked out how to open that. And I used to put stuff in front of it to stop them, but they still somehow managed to open it. They would like pry it open slightly and then get their bodies into the gap and push and like <laughs> use their superhuman cat strength to get into the food cupboard. They they do. They do that. And it's just, it's so like every single panel that he drew in the yeah. cat diary, I could relate to because I was like, oh, he's done that. Does he's done that? Oh, yep. Absolutely. You know, just like yeah. the whole like getting to the wall, the whole like Blair Witch thing where they just sit and they look at the wall and you're like, what are you looking at? Yeah. What, yeah. what is this? Like, do you, what, what is it? What could you possibly be looking at? Like, we, we what, what do you know that we don't? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And yeah. it's that I love, I love when he just like describes, is it, is it yawn with the accursed face? Yeah. Yeah, where where he's just like this this cat, like I don't I don't like its face, and and I was just looking at the drawings, and I was just like, oh, there is something cosmic and evil about this cat, isn't there? It's, it's because like its face funny... is very human. It is. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, again, yeah. Cats, cats. It's cats. that blurring of boundaries. Yeah, cats with people faces, <laughs> but it's like it's it's these warped, detailed faces that he does, um, and the features of like on these faces, like so the way that he he plays this book and the the thing that i really like about it is it's like his fiance is kind of like inducting him into some kind of weird cult of cats and it's kind of all happening around him and he has no say or control over what's happening in the world around him like it's his brand new house and then all of a sudden there's things stuck to the wall to prevent the cats from destroying the walls and you know like all of a sudden extra pieces of furniture and toys are appearing and things like that and he has no control over any of it he's just waking up in this world that's just warping around him and it's the strange shapes and the movements and like in moments of delirium when he actually gives in to the changing of the world and and decides to just just give in and just be with it like 
when he's like uh, expressing love towards the cats or whatever, these moments of delirium that where they have like these single panels of his face, like in like this crazed kind of like moment of it's like happiness, but it's so warped and crazed. And it's like, he's trying to communicate the warping and changing of this world and this reality through the cats. And like he's an initiate, like I was saying, like he's an initiate to a supernatural cult and his wife is like his pupilless guide. And that was the thing she got annoyed about, wasn't it? Cause that was in the, the, um, the yeah. question answer thing. She didn't like that. He drew her without pupils. <laughs> it's so funny though, because you're absolutely right. I didn't, I didn't think about it as like in terms of a cult, but she does actually look like a cult leader when she's got like the pupilless eyes and, and that yeah. kind of like smirk on her face where she's just like, ah, this cat will only like suckle my thumb more. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> And then he gets so jealous about it as well. And like, the, I just love those moments. You're right. Of like total delirium where he's like, <laughs> where he's like, love me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Grabbing the cat. So yeah. And, and the bit where, um, where he, she gets jealous, um, his wife gets jealous when the cat loves him and she grabs the other cat. And there's like three panel breakdown of her grabbing this cat like pulling the cat and the cat holding on the carpet for dear life because <laughs> it doesn't want to be picked up and i'm like i know what that is oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. any cat owner could could relate it's just it's so yeah. it's so relatable i just that that's what if you have ever interacted with a cat i feel like you can read yeah. cat diary and be like i know exactly what you mean yeah cats are evil cats do know something that we don't they are definitely related to some kind of weird, like Lovecraftian horror thing. I just love it. It's it's so effective. Yeah, and there is this, like this again. There's escalation there because things get weirder and weirder and worse, and and, and bigger and bigger as it goes along. Like more things appear in the house, and you go from one cat to two cats, and then like he goes to his like mother, his his like in laws' house, and they've got a cat that never shows itself to anyone. That's just like some kind of like poltergeist almost, isn't it? <laughs> I love that because I had told when I was rereading and the whole the, the incident with him with with the fake poo where he throws yeah. it and then it, it turns out to be like puke and it's just there it's so grotesque but yeah. so funny <laughs> and completely relatable. Like like yeah. I've been saying, it's just like if you if you know a cat you have seen the look that he draws so well because like the cats are so expressive in this yeah. kind of like dead-eyed way like they never actually like you know it's not like a, a smile or anything it's just like a look in their eye where you're just like what what, what are you thinking are you, yeah. are it's you like everything me? it's like the people as well the people are like leaning more towards the cartoon side of the spectrum in that comic and the cats the cats are drawn very hyper realistically sometimes they like, are yeah especially yeah. in terms of like expression where you can like when they sneeze and you're just like <laughs> you can feel like the, the yeah. spray all- i think it's moo that he draws especially with like the really like hyper real fur it's and so everything else. funny yeah it, like the, the norwegian forest cat where you can yeah. you can just tell that this is a, a you can tell how much he loves the cats though through like how he's drawn them well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's like really endearing at the end of the day, and really like really heartwarming to read. Uh-oh. But see, I've not read much of this book. I've read like clips of it online, and I've when I've done some research and whatever. But it strikes me as one of those books that, depending on 
what where you're coming at it from to begin with. It's either like a a, a really relatable, affectionate description of what it's like to be a cat owner, or if you're not a cat person, like I'm not, um, it's like an affirmation of all of the things you dislike about an animal. <laughs> it sounds like it, it reads both ways, depending on which way you're, you're looking at it from. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> I can see that. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and the other thing with it as well, it's um, so this is when uh, obviously the reason I've got onto this and talking about this is because of the gag manga thing, because this is effectively at the end of the day, a gag manga. It's not really a horror story, is it? I would say I would say this is like him showing his comedy chops with this one and also again but but like in reverse of what he does in his his other works where he like probably two parts horror one part comedy with this it's two parts comedy one part horror yes <laughs> I, yeah. I mean i don't i don't know anything about gag comedy but i'm just flipping through it and you know that panel is like he's caught the cat and he's just got this like elongated uncanny face and in the background his fiance has got the same like expression with like the peopleless eyes yeah it's so it's so funny because it is so like horror based and i just i can't i can't actually can't stop laughing at this because it's just yeah it's very sweet but at the same time like i can i can totally see where you're coming from um ray with um being completely put off cats now after reading this because it just affirms your worst nightmares and (laughs) yeah cats are a a nightmarish creature especially especially the amount of page space that gets devoted to the fact that poop gets stuck in moose fur that's awful man <laughs> I, <don't... laughs> I mean so this this seems like a good time to bring up a quote that i found by junjita which is the way he draws his comics the way he like makes his stories is that he takes something normal and looks at it backwards and i feel yeah. like that that's like you were saying two parts comedy one part horror is a good way to describe like the just the living situation of having to live with like an alien entity, which is what cats feel like to me sometimes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's that's kind of like the fact that he takes this is like the thing I wanted to get at as well. Like I've, I've been like a theme through his work. Because I've been trying to pick out overarching themes for us to discuss, I guess. But hmm. the thing that like he does so well is he takes something very ordinary and mundane. And then he turns it into something like he, he takes it through the mirror. Like you say, he looks at it backwards and he turns it into something weird and horrifying. And like, again, with Uzumaki, with just a sing, a simple shape, a spiral, like, but that, that goes, I mean, that goes from like the way he transitions from psychological horror to body horror to go back to Uzumaki again. Um, and the way he does this in a lot of his stories, like, um, in uh, Amigara Fault as well, it's like it transitions from something that's purely psychological and cosmic to something that is actually, you know, physical and just goes into body horror, doesn't it? So, I mean, if we look at the example in Uzumaki where he does that, it's um, the fa- it, again in the first chapter with the almost religious obsession with spirals that like almost like it's a cult or a religion like he's he's you know an initiate into a religion and he's he's learning and becoming like a high priest and then all of a sudden it becomes body horror when he learns how to twist his own body into the spiral shape and again with um amigara fault uh where it starts off very very psychological with the draw 
of the fault in the mountain and the human shaped holes and then becomes body horror when people actually enter the holes, become trapped in the holes and end up getting warped by, you know, the changing shape of the holes kind of thing. Yeah, I really, I really like that, that kind of, as you were saying, like people get kind of drawn, like in the Enigma of Amagara Fault, where they, they get drawn back into the holes and stuff. And that, that pull, I think, is, is so interesting because it's almost like all these stories are inevitable. Yeah. Like mm. they could never end any other way. Actually, and I think with Uzumaki, with the whole concept of like a spiral, how it just, you know, it kind of collapses in on itself. Like, and, and the way the story ends as well, it almost feels like, that the whole thing was kind of preordained in this way and and there's there's no way around it like all people are driven mad by it because they know that the way that it's always going to end up like every so many hundreds of years the whole town turns into a spiral and then everyone else becomes a spiral and then they all get dumped into this big spiral hell and then that's it (laughs) yeah like no end no beginning you know like you can't yeah the origin is is so far removed from like what's happening now it's yeah it's it's been it's been like this for like you know since since time began almost and and everything's just kind of arrested it's like little in, in a yeah. spiral of, of of history of of repeating itself and and that exactly. that to me is like it's peak freud almost like where, where it gets into the uncanny and like in exactly what freud speaks about being uncanny is this like compulsion towards repetition that you can't get away from and this this like this need to just like have a re- repeat pattern of of the way that things like in in, in how things unfold I'm not voicing like, that very well but it's like the the freudian death drive as well isn't it oh yeah yeah absolutely like it's it i i guess that like inevitable like pilgrimage to destruction is the way yeah. Was what I've put because that's that's the thing with Amagora Falls. So, like, I wanted to touch on two things you just said. So, like, like with Uzumaki, which I haven't read, but it sounds like with Amagora Fault, it starts off with like an earthquake which splits open this mountain, and you find out that these holes are like hidden in nature, like they were already there, they were lying in wait, and it's about these things that are hiding naturally in, in like in the natural world, just waiting to be uncovered, and like I feel like there's a lot of that in his stories. Mm. Yeah. And, and um, oh, I just on. think because like there's the thing with because there's a lot of as we've discussed there's a lot of similarities in theming with uh, Uzumaki and uh, the Enigma of Amagara Fault, and uh, one of them is like you have this weird irony of like finding where you belong, but where you belong is is terrifying. Um, and <laughs> with with like Amagara Fault, they they they've caught glimpses of. Um, uh, holes shaped like them and it's like it's kind of semi it would be impossible to be like oh yeah that looks like my ship because I don't even know what my ship would be but this is <laughs> it, it, it's a it's a like nature's cosmic terror where it's just a, a click you know like just intuition like you see it and it it'd be like because I don't know how I'd initially react if like say I was on the tube or something and then across the platform I saw my doppelganger or something like that. And if I would immediately yeah. recognize, oh, that person looks exactly like me. Or if it's like, I don't see myself how the world sees me. But um, mm. it, it is like this, this thing of like, oh, that's home. And you just have this drive and pull. And with, um, oh, I've read the story a million times, but I can't remember her name, but the, uh, the uh, lady that uh, the lead character bumps into on the way there. 
And uh, for him, that stuff's manifested in uh, like nightmares that he's having, which also end up being semi exposition dumps for us, but in quite a organic way. But then for her, it's just a case of like, she's gone there because she's seen her like human hall on TV and she's been drawn to it. But then there's this whole like reticence where it's like, not, not an, an, an activity of like, I'm going to, I'm going to go to that hole and walk in because blah, blah. Like some of the people are where they've just been like, this is my one. And they jump in with her. It's like, I'm going to end up in there. It's going to pull me in. I'm, it's going to, it's going to pull me in. It's going to pull me in. Don't leave me alone. It's going to pull me in. Yeah. She's and, terrified of the prospect and there's like a hook yeah. in her mind dragging her to it. Yeah, yeah. Like there's passivity in that where it's like mm. you're getting so close to, to the void and, uh, glimpsing over enough that she's found her shape, her hole, mm. that it, it becomes a thing of like, uh, just in, impending doom. It's like, uh, it's not a case of if, it's a case of when. And yeah, I think that's a thing that just goes through all of, uh, Ito's works where it's just horrible, uh, loops of like obsession and compulsion and these, these, uh, like like I was mentioning before, the intrusive thoughts that um, just start off as a whisper and then before before long become uh, like a chorus just just blaring in your head. Yeah, it gets so loud you can't ignore it. Like mm. it really does. Like uh, you you took the words out of my mouth, really, because what I was going to say is that it, it touches on like obsessive compulsive disorder, like OCD, like especially with the guy collecting spirals and worshipping obsessing over spirals and again you know it's like like this this ocd compulsion to see if you fit in the hole kind of thing you know it's like the awful thing about amagara fault is it's it's like she has that whole lead up to getting into the hole but then it's that it's the moment where you've gone into the hole there's no turning back you've made that one single choice and then you're inexorably dragged down the path but it takes a month and like you're trying to find out where you belong, and it turns out like a month later where you belong is in like a bolognese sauce. Like it's that <laughs> that that concept of you you make this choice, and then it still takes forever for the repercussions to come around. Yeah, that that it, idea is horrible. And and to bring this again back to Uzumaki, speaking of spaghetti, <laughs> right? There's uh, there's this bit. It's like my favorite chapter actually. It's where the um you know the long houses where everyone's inside the long houses and they squish themselves in so hard. And they all cram into these long houses, like in such a like extreme way that they all become spaghetti. And then when the house falls down around them, when the houses break and they start that that the, they are just like you know, like when you let spaghetti go cold in the pan, and it becomes like this like congealed like block of spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> they look like that, and that, that's just like a, a weird note that I had just to just to do with just to do with that when you brought up spaghetti. Because I, I thought I thought that was brilliant and also weirdly hilarious. But yeah, yeah, the 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 niche genre of like Tupperware horror. I love it, but I also I love I love that you um, brought up the parallel in Uzumaki to like the houses because for me like the the enigma of Amagara Fault it it feels almost like when they go into the holes it's like the sense of like going home. Yeah, um, and like this this draw and the reason why she's so scared of like going back in the hole is like it's it's this it's this like return almost to like some kind of primeval idea of home that like is is so 
terrifying that she like can't bring herself to do it but she's drawn to it and like she has to like she has to just in the end it like consumes her and she ends up in the hole anyway but like it's just there's there's something so terrifying about that idea of like this compulsion to return to like your original source or some kind of like a point of origin kind of thing that i find exactly yeah (laughs) like um read amagara fault and then try and you know like those those children's toys with you know you have to put shapes in holes oh yes <laughs> yeah i never thought about it that way but yeah no i'm never gonna yeah, be able that, to do it now. like that the first thing that comes into my head is that or um you know the the play-doh toys yeah that's what uh, i was thinking of the play-doh yeah yeah the, extru- the extrusion machine thing mm, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, like that that's almost as if he was looking at one of those when he wrote it, like one of those Play-Doh toys. But yeah, no, I can. Yeah, I I fully do love that story and um, definitely draw parallels with that. And, and parallels with, um, I suppose, between Uzumaki and Gyo is the like the theme of escalation, which is something I keep bringing up. But yeah, it's it's how it kind of just like goes on an upwards curve. And the curve just gets sharper and steeper as it goes. Like it goes from, I think what I was going to say actually is to do with one of the, like my favorite scene in Go, actually, actually one of my favorite scenes in Go, one of my favorite pages uh, or parts is the part with the, you know, the plastic bag where he wraps the, the fish creature <laughs> that he believes he's killed in the plastic bag. And then the bag starts floating and following him. Yeah, this is like, one of those points that I, I see. I brought this up um, in my notes for like, uh, let me see, like threats what? that you I, can't comprehend and that make yeah. you pause with confused, absurd comedy. Like I've noticed, this is the thing about uh, like oscillating between horror and comedy. I think Gyor does yeah. this really well because I've got notes like listing what's happening in the uh, through the story just so I can keep track of what's going on. And then every so often, I've written stuff in capital letters to show like the shock comedy moments. I was like, um, you know, all the pacing, look how creepy the spindly legs are. Look how scared the fish monster is. And then like towards the end, it's like, um, it's, it follows, but with a gross unnatural floating crab bag or, uh, oh, first we had a shark on legs and then here come the cephalopods. Like there's always this moment where everything yeah. becomes so absurd that it becomes funny and then it drops back into horror and then it like escalates, 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 and- gives you a sense of relief and then shows yeah. you more horror. And like, it's that thing of if it was drawn as a graph, it would be going up and then only dropping slightly. And then you'd still overall, the trend would be escalation. But you're you're yeah. constantly doing this like curve up and down. And the whale, when the whale comes out of the ocean and just collapses under its own weight. And it can't, yeah, it can't quite be supported by the mechanical legs, yeah. which I never fully explained, but I like the fact that they came from something that wasn't, that clearly yeah. wasn't man-made. They hint at the fact that those mechanical legs were actually built by the bacteria, don't they? Mm. And from like, uh, old shipwrecks and stuff. Yeah. And I like that this, this story, Gyo in particular, doesn't fully commit to like what the, um, like the intentionality of the machines or like the intentionality of the gas or the, like the symbiote things which connect to a, a dying body, which has been inflicted by this disease, which makes them, you know, spit out this putrid gas, which then powers the machines themselves. Like it never fully explains 
what the root of that is, whether it's cosmic, whether it's like it's come from Earth somewhere deep in uh, in the ocean, yeah. or whether it was potentially man-made. But towards the end of the story, they hint that it can't have been man-made. I mean, you know, there was no there yeah. were no joins, there were no seams. It mu- it seems organic, but masquerading as um, like sterile. And I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's this horrible thing. Yeah, I mean, one way to look at it is that it's just one massively elaborate fart gag. And there's a lot of that as well. Like one, one of my one of my favorite horror comedy sort of like it's so disgusting and disarming that it makes you laugh is like when Kaori's you find out she's tried to commit suicide, but she's like farting. She's farting and burping this gas at the same time. She's kind of spinning on the rope because spinning of like, the room. Yeah, because of the, the force of the gases. And it's like it's horrifying. And if you were there in that room, you'd be like struck. You'd be like struck still by the. I don't know, by the awfulness of what you're seeing, but on page, it's kind of funny. And I felt, I like, it takes a lot for me to feel this, but I felt bad for laughing. Yeah. Like, I felt bad. <laughs> it's, it's awful. But when you think about it as well, like, when you think about the bit at the beginning with the floating plastic bag, mm. like, why wouldn't it end in a blimp? <laughs> well, yes. So I, <laughs> that's one of my notes is, um, uh, escalation, a fucked up dirigible, and then the next one is swerve. The dirigible has bat wings. Like it, it just, it, even when you think it's as stupid as it can get, it gets stupider. <laughs> but in a really fun and entertaining, and sort of like it, it, enabling the more horrific aspects way. Yeah. Oh dear. No. Yeah. It's 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 one of those things that when you're reading it, it's the frighteningness, the frightening aspect is there. But when you think back about it, it's actually really funny. It's like. You know, this blimp that's powered by this, like, really noxious gas. And it's, one one point yeah. that I um, that I thought was really effective that isn't one of the big moments is, like, well, it kind of is, is um, to spoil towards the end of your where, uh, like, our protagonist ends up in the, the death circus and they ignite the gas. And it sort of reveals that this dream he had where it was potentially paranormal but then they backpedal to show that it's this very organic natural uh like thing it's just the like the gas that is being created by this disease they ignite the gas and then you can see the faces like that's what it takes to see the face that's um driving the gas and it reminded it reminded me of seeing people vape on the street so like you know when when you it's that moment where I I think I've brought this up a couple of times on the cast but like where you realize that the like the smoke vape the walls and the the motion of the vapor this visible vapor are the same as the invisible air that we breathe it's just that we can see it because it's it's you know it's an opaque vapor and we're constantly walking through the fog of other people's exhalations and like if you realize that the entire world is made up of this by the end and it's like suffused with this unnatural disgusting gas like it that's the moment it really hit home for me. I was like, shit, we could be, we could be living this right now. We just can't see it, you know? And, yeah, yeah. and the artwork for this is great because like it slowly does escalate from the start to the end of the book where he's constantly drawing in like the, the haze of the gas that's been introduced into the world. And like it's, it's almost, it's so, um, like slow building that you almost don't notice it until halfway through. Yeah, I thought that was really effective. It also makes me think of a story from my childhood when um, I was like really, really little. We used to have a tin cupboard at my mum's house um, with like lots of like tin fish and all sorts of other stuff. And me being me, used to mess around with the tins. And some of those tins had keys on, especially the fish ones. Like 
kipper tins with keys on and stuff. And, um, like, I was there one day building forts with these tins or something. And my mum was like, she could see me like looking at the key on this can of kippers or whatever, like telling me not to play with it. And obviously, you know, I'm not going to listen to it because I'm three years old. And, um, I opened the tin and got the juice all over my hands. And I just remember it being this incredibly traumatic experience because my hands just smelled like fish for the rest of the night, no matter how many times I washed them. And I was just like, get it off, get it off, you know, couldn't get it off. And just like when I was reading Go, like the fact that this like rotten fish smell just like all across the island or whatever, and this smell that hit, um, is it Kauru? Kauri? Yeah, Kauri. Kauri, yeah. The, the smell that Kauri's complaining about. And I, I just thought back to that moment when I was a kid just sitting there with like smelly fish hands, like crying because no matter how many times I wash my hands, I couldn't get rid of the smell. <laughs> That is horrid. Nothing <laughs> in this book really made me gag, but that story did. <laughs> yeah. That's what you get, though, when you don't listen, isn't it? It's funny that, like, it's it's the smell, though, that, like, is particularly gag-worthy. Because, like, it's it's one of those things, like, we're in horror. Like, I, I can't really think of anything other than this and like the yellow wallpaper where, where like the, the protagonist is like, oh, and this, it was like a yellow smell and the smell drives her like insane where it's that like olfactory sense that's particularly offensive. Yeah. And it's, it's quite memorable because like, I, I think like, you know, studies have shown that like in terms of like conjuring memories, like when you think back to like certain smells, they're like the strongest associations like with with very particularly like in-depth memories so hence your your fishy fishy hands story <laughs> really well there um but it just like i guess like just picturing like what it must smell like i think is, is one of the most horrific things about that story because you're just like it must just smell like a fish market times a thousand <laughs> like, <laughs> like, the wor- like, like dying <laughs> But yeah, no, it's just, it's, it's the idea of the smell that really gets to me because it's, it's what drives her insane in the end, right? It's like, Kauri's like, I, it still smells in here and she can't yeah. get it, she can't get it out of her head, like that smell. And there's something particularly just like yeah. ridiculous, but terrifying about that idea of, of smell following you around. And then she becomes the source of the smell. Oh God, yeah. 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 And you could tell that he was having fun, like drawing different configurations for the legs in, um, <laughs> In that book, like with like one of them that is basically just a pile of bodies that just collects people. Yes. Like later I mean, on in the book, yeah. Did anyone else get like a War of the Worlds kind of vibe though from the story? Yeah, like, a little, yeah. Especially yeah. with the way it's like little spindly legs. Like, yes, and like and yeah. just the whole like mechanical aspect of like of this of this threat, but like I just thought it was so interesting that like it's something that you know is alive because of some kind of like horrid corruption of bacteria and like in war of the world it's bacteria that kills the aliens and so it was just mm. kind of like subverting that trope of like um like how do we defeat the monsters but the monsters are homegrown kind of thing that really taps into kind of like that that 19 like 50s fear of like they were amongst us all along kind of thing yeah. <laughs> from the deep sea and i thought that was really i, I love that aspect of it 
Yeah, especially like the slow building of scale because it starts off with small fish and then it escalates to like sharks on legs and then it escalates to whales on legs and then it ultimately builds up to the end of the story where it's it does it's very reminiscent of all the worlds. That's one of the things I thought of where it's like you see in the haze in the background, like in the distance, um, these massive spindly creatures which have hundreds of human bodies attached to them. They're like feeding off the gases of multiple bodies at the same time. And I like that the story ends on that note. Like it doesn't, it it ends in a way that I didn't expect because it's basically like it becomes apocalyptic. But the story ends because Kaori is now at peace. Like she's finally, her body has finally been burned and she no longer has the stench that she was afraid of at the very start of the book. And like, that's how the story is bookended. I thought was quite tragic and affecting. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And it, like with this, with this book particularly, with Gyo particularly, of the ones I read the way that he draws like decomposing things. So if you have a look at um, the way that he draws corpses and the way that he draws these like hyper detailed decomposing bodies attached to these like leg things that are walking and stuff. And then like, and then you look, look through some of his other work. Like I, this is going to be a weird thing to say, but I love the way he draws corpses. Like he's really, really good at drawing like decomposing, like rotting flesh and, and getting that like mottledness on it and, and the, the, the amount of like detail that he puts in there and stuff. And that's actually really evident in his, uh, adaptation of, um, Frankenstein. So when I was reading through his adaptation of Frankenstein, I, I thought the book itself was like absolutely beautiful, like in the way that he draws like Frankenstein's monster and the way that he draws the dead bodies when dr frankenstein goes grave robbing and stuff and it's just like it's really weird thing to say but the way he draws these like grotesque like the way he gets that spot on or almost spot on for me like i think that's fantastic like in the way that he manages to get that amount of detail in and and it actually produces a reaction from you because you look at it and it's not like when you look at other comics or, or you know or, or with zombies or, or anything like that it, it's like you look at it and it's because of the staticness of the panel as well because again it's left there to linger you look at it and you, you get like the whole like ew kind of you actually recoil from it because you're you're looking at it in such detail and it's it really is truly grotesque and like this this whole like thing with rotten flesh and then to do that to the extent that he did it in Kyo with like every other thing on the page was rotten or, you know, exploding with this weird gas or full of like boils or whatever. It's just, it's just insane. I loved it. My, my reaction to this sort of like organic horror. Um, I don't know if any of you guys had this, but like, cause I spent a good part of my week coming home and reading Junji Ito. And I found that I couldn't take too much of it in big doses. So I spent a lot of time in between playing Tetris or playing with some Lego. Because I feel like after all that disgusting organic corruption of bodies, I needed something that was really straight edged and sharp and clinical and clean. Did anybody else have that reaction? No, not really. Not not in that way. Like I would go from this to something like, um, I don't know, like I would just read another comic. <laughs> not necessarily another comic that was ordered or straight or i suppose actually you know what actually yeah i did because i went from this to shiny superhero comics so mm. i guess there's the point there because i would read this and then i would go and read x-men or something and it was just 
like complete yeah completely just opposed like two different very different kinds of comic very different kinds of sequential art as well and and also like the um because obviously one is japanese and you would read it i guess i mean the only the way i would say you would read it would be back to front but that's wrong because in japan that is the front <laughs> but like it's like going from reading one way to reading the other. So I'm like swiping one way on my tablet, then swiping the other or, you know, reading one way and then reading the other. And it's like the, the kind of, um, I think I messed myself up a little bit doing that, but <laughs> yeah, like flipping backwards and forwards. Yeah. Or I think that might be, forward, the, as it were. <laughs> I realize that might be the wrong question to ask for like the horror aficionados and the Gothic literature student. But um, like, if you, if you need a palpable sense of relief from this kind of stuff, like how do you go yeah. about doing it? But yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you're talking to like me, Ray, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you know that I like, I just basically spend my life immersed in stuff like this. So. Yeah. Vicky, how do you feel about that? Well, I was reading it before bed. So, <laughs> you know, this clearly doesn't get under my skin in the same way that some other things do. Um, I was having very strange dreams afterwards. Like, uh, nothing nothing that I can really kind of bring up in a podcast because it's not, not for polite company. Um, but, yeah, no, it's just, it. I do spend a lot of time thinking about it, though, because it doesn't, like, affect me in, in the sense that, like, I'm not scared. but. I spend a lot of time just being like, why do I like this so much? You know mm. what I mean? Like it's cause I, I really, I'm not really a comic person and I don't read a lot of graphic respond to manga either, but for some reason I just love Jinji Ito. And it's been, it's been a couple of years now where I think like the, the Enigma of Amagara Fault was the first thing that I read. And at first I was like, this is so ridiculous. Like, what is this? What did I just read? And then I couldn't stop thinking about it. And a couple of days later I was, kind of scared me and i don't have that reaction a lot mm. that i watch them on a regular basis but um yeah no I, I there's something very special about jinji so where whenever he releases on i'm like i need to buy this this needs to go in the collection we need to have this like on our shelf and then people come over and they're just like what is this yeah it's it's because it is so unique i suppose in terms mm. of the way that he does things and the way his horror is it's like um i mean like when to go back to what you were saying ray about like things getting under your skin or to, to go back to what vicky was saying even about things getting under your skin like when i mm. i have this reaction where when i watch things or or if something does get under my skin it doesn't frighten me right away but it is afterwards when i am alone or like lying in bed or whatever that i start to think about it more and then that's when it starts to get under my skin so my initial reaction to it will probably be like really neutral but then afterwards it will it will play on my mind to be clear it's not that i'm i'm scared of it it's not that it's necessarily getting under my skin it's just like after you've had like you know six biscuits in a row you sometimes just need a bit of a glass of water or something just to <laughs> just to wash it down or to like, take, <laughs> take a break from it but to, yeah. to what you were saying vicky i think part of the reason junjito's um, like a good starting point for people new to comics is like one it's very concept driven so like I think most people can just enjoy a, a really interesting unique simple concept delivered very like starkly I think Amagara Fold is a really good example of why a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily read comics have found that because the images are so 
like indelible and mimetic and they've spread across the internet. So you would have exposure to them where you wouldn't normally, but also I think his comics don't necessarily ask for a lot of comic literacy. I think you don't need to have read lots of comics to understand how to read his comics. Mm. And so it's, I think they're very easy to get into, especially because like horror tends to be that, I think, because everyone's afraid mm. of something. So there's always something to capture your imagination that way. Mm. Yeah, Definitely. absolutely. And I just, I, I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, horror is one of the off a lot, especially like, you know, in terms of, like the way movies are kind of rewarded during award season. Like, I feel like no one really thinks about horror and, and with like Jordan Peele now, I think people are starting to realize that it can be quite cerebral. And I find that like as weird and kind of skin grim as Toe stuff is like, it really sticks with you. And, mm. and, you know, just like, there, I, I feel like, you know, I haven't really, like thought about this at great length, but there's probably some kind of social message there with a lot of the stories as well, like with Greased and like the, you know, the poor family, like living in the same shop, like, like a, a in close proximity to like where meals are cooked and like just that like kind of awful glyceride seeping into their skin and stuff like that. Hmm. Like that to me, like, and I, I don't know, works, works quite well on like almost like a parasite level, like where, where it's, it's like about like where people live when they're disenfranchised and, and the horrors of, of being there, I guess. I don't know. I haven't, I, like I said, like I haven't thought a great length about this, but, but I, I do. I find that his stories just hit a nerve with me um, mm. in a way that not a lot of other stuff does where I'm you... like compelled to read more. Yeah. Um, and like, I think there's probably like a bit of an environmental message with um, Gil actually, when I think about it, like, yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I think that in terms of, and eco Gothic is kind of like a big thing now, you know, with them, um, kind of this weird like mother nature is turning on us um kind of thing because it's it's a it's a hot topic like every day right is is how much we're destroying the planet and how much this is going to bite us in the ass and how much it's already kind of affected the world and Mm. so i think you're you're absolutely right and it's um something that i've been meaning to read more on but I, i i like that that's the crux of you yeah, see, I did, uh, like you're saying, I, I didn't spend too much time thinking about what the social aspects could mean, but I've got a few notes on Gyor. So, like, the, I've got the march of human progress in service of destruction, because you've got this, this idea of the original sea device, which was possibly formed organically by the disease, versus the steel contraption that is, you know, impenetrable to rust and corruption that Dr. Koyanagi made. And, like, that's a, taking something that is already destructive and making a, a stronger man-made version of it. And then following that, like how the the system, like the machine that these bodies are strapped into, like how that is changed, you know, how that changes our organically driven dance. Because the original machines that came from the sea are doing one thing and you can't ascribe too much intentionality to them. But then when Dr. Koyanagi makes a version of it and he straps himself into it it follows a different rhythm it follows a different pattern and that's there's something really like evil about that and then i think the final one was i've just got a question saying is it a direct response to climate change because it it came out around 2001 2002 and i think leon might have something more to say on this you left a note for me yeah i just put that uh, i thought it was a good point with that because you were marking like 
the the release of this and like climate change or back then global warming um there's always been a topic that bubbles up and down um but like rem- uh in this period of time it's really close to the uh Kyoto protocol being like signed in and in the in the midst of it uh coming into action a couple of years later so I, I think this was a sort of eclipse time when uh these worries were were back in the uh in the zeitgeist to some degree mm, yeah because I, I think the thing that i went searching for straight after i realized it came out in 2001 2002 was to see when like an inconvenient truth came out which i think was 2006 2005 sometime around in that same decade you know mm. and the more that i read things like this or see you know this kind of movie it, the, the greater appreciation i have for the happening even though I've probably sat and trashed the happening on this very cast, like as a film, because I mean, when I remember going to see it in my initial reaction to it being, this is terrible, but like the more like of this type of story I read and like the more that I explore like Junji Ito's style of horror and whatever, the more of an appreciation I have for the happening, the film, and maybe actually it's not that such a bad film. Uh, I'm just back (laughs) on that because I think what you're getting at there is that the concept is, uh, uh, like right and it's like it's a fruitful concept that you could do a lot of interesting things with but that movie doesn't really it was executed poorly yeah executed very poorly yeah but you know it was ahead of its time i guess yeah and concept <laughs> only though but in execution yeah, like, yeah. It falls, it falls, it's so ridiculous that it's almost like a piss take of climate change where you're just like you couldn't hit the nail harder on the head in a way that would put climate change deniers like you know on high alert being like this is this is nothing (laughs) like like, it almost almost is the opposite of what he's trying to do because it is so bad i can't i don't think i've trashed this film with you guys but (laughs) you know if we had time on this podcast i would just it is i think probably the worst time i've ever had at the cinema i went i went to the (laughs) cinema to see it and I wanted uh, all I'm going to say is I wanted my time back because I remember the Hulk movie came out at the same time as that a Hulk movie came out and uh, I did like a double feature thing because I went to see that and then I went and did something else for half an hour and then went back to watch the Hulk like straight after <laughs> it's like a palate cleanser well all I know is I'd love to do an M Night Shame along with you guys at some point I love that can we please <laughs> yes yes yeah. Because I don't know if you guys have watched Servant, but I have some thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> on Scary Jerry. Well, okay, so I, I spent more of my time reading a lot of the short stories. So I just wanted to um, point out two that I found really effective. So one was Red Turtleneck. Did anyone else read that one? Uh, about a guy who's basically holding his decapitated head against his body. And if he lets go, he'll die. Oh, yeah, no, I I didn't read it, but it was one of the ones that came up in some of the stuff that I'd read around the subject in preparation. So, in fact, actually, one of the, I read like a sort of like listicle about some of the most like uh, horrifying panels from his work. And that pops up. Yeah, it's fantastic. Like, I mean, yeah. sorry, I've just lost track of my notes, but one because of the things I... Been decapitated like very deliberately and, and in such a kind of like surgical way that mm. he's still alive and if he lets if his grip isn't that good then obviously you know he's gonna die mm. 
But there's this, like, agonizing escalation to the concept. Like, it's already awful to begin with. And, like, um, some of the first few pages of that comic are colored in. And you realize that it's called Red Turtleneck because he's just been given a turtleneck that's, like, made out of white cotton. But it's turned red because all the blood is seeping out of his neck. And it slowly fades from red to white as it goes further down. Um and so he's holding his head, and then it gets to this point where, like, the antagonist, um, she's just messing with him, and in the same way that Junji Ito is messing with us, because he's already shown us this really horrific, like, awful concept. And then she takes, like, a, a playing card and swipes it into the wound, and then further escalates it by, like, pushing a cockroach into it, and he's screaming and screaming. And, like, while they're trying to figure out what to do, he has to, like, the only way he can get rid of it without taking his head off is to swallow it. And that just, I, I had to put it down for a second to think, because that, that was, it hit me way too viscerally, that comic. And it, I, that's why I put it down as one of my favorites. And then there was also one called The Hanging Balloons, which as a as a concept is so paranormal, so so surreal that, I don't know, it, it came full circle into into being like iconic and really affecting where it's basically there are, Every single person has a giant version of their head floating in the sky with a noose hanging from it, and it follows you around and tries to capture your real head in its noose, and then you're then you're gone. And like, yes. it, I remember it's, this one. It's such a great concept, and especially how the mechanic of that is then built upon throughout a relatively short comic. I think it's only like thirty pages, but like how much he packs in, how much like mechanical like narratively mechanical swerves he puts into that story is is amazing it's one of my i think that's one of my favorites yeah i mean actually one of the other short stories that i read um the the short i think it's an adaptation of somebody else's story was the human chair um i'm just bringing up some information on it now because i believe that it is an adaptation of yeah it's a short story by a japanese by japanese author and critic uh idogawa rampo and uh, it was originally published in October 1925, but um, it was adapted um, as a movie in 1997, and then it was adapted into a manga by Junji Ito. And uh, this is the story of a carpenter who builds himself into a chair so that he can be like, it's like really, really creepy because he, I mean, if you look at the reveal panel where it shows you the inside of the chair, he's like built himself into a chair so that he is forever with his favorite author or something. Like, so when the author sits in the chair, he's like constantly embracing her because his arms are in the arm of the chair and he's sitting in the chair. And that really got under my skin. Actually, when I think about it, that was, that was like your, my cockroach in the neck moment. I think like the idea of someone living inside a chair, like completely unknown to you. Like they, they, they come out at night and stretch their legs and get something to eat or whatever. But then they go back into the chair. Like, Ugh. as if they are part of the chair, you know, it's like those stories of like somebody hiding in your attic and you don't know for like years and years and years. Right. Yeah. But like even worse because they're in your chair. Like <laughs> imagine you sit at this like really plush armchair on your computer, but there's someone living in that, like, breathing heavily because they're getting to kind of like almost touch you i hate that that is yeah. stop it yeah, <laughs> no, just, yeah exactly. nothing, nothing has really creeped me out in 
Now I'm just like, I don't want to sit in my chair anymore. <laughs> don't want to be here. No, that's, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly why it got under my skin because it's just like the weirdest, creepiest concept ever. But like, like the work, because I've seen that, I haven't read the comic, but I've seen the, the image that's been spread around the internet. And like, it's like the, the, the back of this leather armchair is opened up and it has space for his face, arms and legs to be like folded into the, the sofa. But the worst bit is like next to his head, there's little shelves and one of them has like a tin of beans on it or something. It's like, so yeah. was he eating the tin of beans while sat in the chair? Like imagine somebody's head chomping cold beans from a tin. Oh, while you're sat like on top of him, like, mere, mere centimeters away. That's just yeah, uh, creeps me the out. The worst part, if you look closely, is the fact that because he's obviously been in there like sweating and everything, right? <laughs> and and you've got like the print of his like his skull on the inside of the face bit. If you have a look, oh, that's nasty, dude. <laughs> <laughs> it's like whoa, but yeah, no, I yeah it's it's a weird weird story and then um one of the other things he did that i thought was absolutely brilliant was they got him to draw like some pokemon stuff like official stuff oh really okay oh yeah, yeah I've, I've seen some of this stuff yeah and um he he drew like this one panel um this comes up in that listicle i mentioned which is the 13 most uh unsettling junji panels um and that is um like it's like a ghost it's he draws a ghost type um banet um which is basically banet is it's like a discarded toy that comes to life it's like it's originally a discarded doll that comes to life with a grudge against its former owner that's how the pokemon is formed and then he's drawn that and it just looks so unsettling and creepy like he's done such a good job with that like to make something that's, I mean, even the, the, the thing about Pokemon is like when you think about some of the ghost types in Pokemon, like the ghost type Pokemon, like Ga- uh, Ghastly and such. And then you look at like the concepts behind them, like how these ghosts are supposedly formed, like these malevolent spirits or whatever. And it's actually like really, really, really unsettling. But then they look so fucking cute. It's <laughs> but what he's done is he's taken the unsettling part and he's kept it unsettling and this thing just looks horrible like wow you know damn <laughs> yeah pokemon are messed up <laughs> yeah they are man like i look at some of the deck entries for ghost types just look up deck like deck entries for ghost types especially because that is like it is really messed up like when you truly sit down and think about it like but yeah it's it's cool um, I guess the only thing that we haven't really talked about um, was actually my favorite, which is Tomie. Um, just because I, I I just love how if you read like the the collection of all all his Tomie stories that I think um, came out like a, a couple of years ago, like just the, the 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 volume with all of them together, like you can see how much his art progresses throughout. Like reading it from start to, to to finish, and like how much the character gets fleshed out, and how much like the the artwork just becomes so much more detailed and i i love looking at that process of like how his his own art has kind of like blossomed in a way yeah because like the early uh chapters or issues um especially if you've not you're not reading it in order of his other works you go to uh tomie and it's just like oh like this is like it's like some of it is uh it's still like cool but some of it the way it's composed and the way how uh, black and white are used, 
sometimes it it like obfuscates uh like the blocking or like what what is actually going on in the panel at times yeah absolutely and i i just love that it's it's almost like it's still in progress which is almost like for, for some reason like reading it as a volume it works well because of the story as well because it's it's this it's never like complete it's always like kind of self-replicating like just kind of like tomi is always kind of self-replicating yeah. and it, like that blurring of boundaries i find is like it's, it's almost jarring yeah. if you look back to like the first couple pages and look at like the difference between like the art in the first couple panels versus like the art at the end like it, you're just like oh man you improved <laughs> this is yeah. the one that i really wanted to read but didn't get around to it is very good. I've not seen any yeah. of the adaptations, but um, but I just I love that Tomie for me as a character kind of encapsulates like what what I love about Jinjito's work in that like he does the abhuman really well. And this is like one of my one of my favorite concepts kind of in the Gothic, which is like um, I think Kelly Hurley um defines the abhuman as like something that's liminal, admic, not quite human, characterized by its morphic variability. Like she says continually in danger of becoming not itself becoming other yeah. yeah and that yeah that that for me is is what i love about his work is just that that liminal quality of like this is something that's always like an unstable organic compound that's always in danger of becoming something else mm. and yeah Tomie for me is i think like especially in terms of like we've not really talked about like the gendered issues of his work but i think that work for me is is particularly crucial in, in terms of like how he how he almost like like draws women compared to like how the men are drawn. Hmm. Yeah. Um. But yes, that's a topic for another time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of the the way that he represents gender in his work and stuff, it's um, it's very conservative, and he has this like kind of yeah. there's a lot of it's very traditional views in there, but and and very very Japanese in that way as well. Because it's a very Japanese attitude towards women. Yes, I, I agree completely. Yeah. I, I find it it's it's interesting just in how many of his monsters are gendered female, mm. and like that kind of monstrosity. It like it harks back to basically like the monstrous feminine, right? Like, yeah. it's, it's it's like a a horror trope that you see all the time, and like I feel like Tomie kind of goes some way in kind of undoing what we think of as like the monster feminine, but but not quite and so like i'm always like is this misogynistic probably do i still like it yes wasn't it written originally for a girl's magazine wasn't it a shoujo a shoujo manga was it yeah that's, I, that's interesting i, I think that's like how i read something like that I, I think that's why it's got so many adaptations as well Ooh. yeah I did not know that. That is vital contextual information. Yeah, because um, I, I would agree with you uh, in regards to uh, the Tomio character sort of not fully bucking that trend, but complicating mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And I think that's because she's given more complexity and a bit more agency than some of the um, the other characters that we get. Because e- even in some cases you have uh the character who is not the villain and is the main character who is pretty much our protagonist or our our um our eyes and ears and uh, in a lot of the stories they are oblivious or are they're not the person who solves the mystery yes uh, yeah 
they're eyes and ears, but they're the person who, um, oh, they don't hear that sound. They don't see the spirals. That's not weird at all. And it's like, mm-hmm. it, it is weird because they're the main character, but not it, yeah. in a way. And you, no, you, absolutely, yeah. So, um, Tomie, like, it wasn't TV, sorry, it was film. I got that wrong. So I just wanted to correct myself there. And if I give you the, um, the, the list of Tomie movies they've made, there's the original Tomie, which was made in 1998. Then there's Tomie Another Face, which is 1999. There's Tomie Replay from the year 2000. Um, there's Tomie Rebirth in 2001. Tomie The Final Chapter, Forbidden Fruit, which was 2002. Tomie Beginning in 2005, Tomie Revenge in 2005, Tomie vs. Tomie in 2007. You're making that one up. No, I'm not. It's there. <laughs> Tomie Unlimited in 2011. So, Can I just say, I love how many franchises not the final chapter and then it gets rebooted. It's just like, ah, Origins or Beginnings. Yeah. <laughs> so typical. It's never the final chapter because they know that they yeah. can more money out of it. <laughs> They call it the final check. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that like, is it the Freddy and Jason films that have done that? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And they just get progressively more ridiculous. But I, yeah, and I then Tommy to- <laughs> versus Tommy just just conjures memories of Freddy versus Jason. I don't know why. Yeah, just the title. Like, I, I need to watch some yeah. of these, and I need to definitely read the manga. But yeah, and um. Yeah, I believe it was actually uh, a shoujo. Let's have a look. I'll just double check that actually because I don't want to like. Uh, I don't give you that information on the cast and then have it be wrong. That would be really cool though, because I think that. Yeah. I think even despite being written for like a girls' magazine, like I don't think that that necessarily negates the misogynistic undertones of it because I think a lot of the time, like women internalize a lot of what patriarchal culture yeah feels about them hmm. so yeah tell me a, a japanese horror manga series written and illustrated by junji ito it was his first published work he originally submitted to monthly halloween which was a shoujo magazine and it started in 19, uh, 1987 so yeah it was originally for a shoujo magazine so there you go magazine cool. a, a magazine where the demographic is young girls Wow, young girls as well. That's surprising. Uh, I think that's what it says. I think that's what Shoujo is. Um, Ray Ray will know more about this because he reads more manga than I do. Sorry, say that again? um, Tommy A was originally for a Shoujo magazine. Yeah, Shoujo would be for girls. Teenage female target demographic. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up because I, again, I think in a lot of these short stories, I didn't really notice it, but I certainly felt that... um, that compulsion to be like, is this misogynistic, but am I still enjoying it from Gyo? Because uh, Kaori is a very particularly like, I don't know, there's a, there's a um, cliche of her being like the screaming, yeah. the screaming girl who doesn't know how to cope and is like constantly um, mm-hmm. whining to her boyfriend. Like I, I, that, that set me off, but at the same time, like what it was used in service for, I don't know. I don't know. It was, it, yeah, I don't know where I lie I on think, that, I think. Well, it's funny because, like, yeah. they make her, like, a quote-unquote shrill, mm. uh, and then she spends the beginning of the book being gaslighted. Like, she can smell yeah. the stench. It's yes. like, he's... See- he, you know that... Um, oh, I can't remember what it's called. Uh, yeah, the 
ignorance of weirdness sensor where mm. it's like uh mm. so it's just called the weirdness sensor and he and a lot of protagonists have the ignorance of it and it, his stuff where he's dealt with all this crazy stuff down in okinawa and then they go back and it's like it's a cockroach you idiot stop being so scared and it's like mm. what? <laughs> like just you gotta trust her nose she knows what's going on but yeah. like um there there is a lot of that at the beginning definitely and yeah for sure yeah, that's like also just classic gothic, right? There's always like you know the, the damsel in distress who's being gaslighted and mm. stuff, and I I find that it's just it's, it's interesting how that that theme, which is so western to me, shows up in so much of Joe's work. Like, it does. It does yeah. make the ending of that story a little bit disingenuous now. Like I've just, mm. it's just clicked for me because, like, at the end, he's sort of giving his little monologue about how she's at peace now. It's like, well, you never listened to her to begin with. Well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That's- that that is a really good point too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I was going like, to say it's it's like he intentionally makes her annoying and high maintenance at the beginning of the story. Like he he has that kind of like um, he intentionally does that in order to I don't know like maybe make the protagonist appear more macho, but even he's just as useless. I don't he know why useless. he does that. Yeah, yeah, he's like totally useless. But yeah, yeah, and he's. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, the protagonist is almost the weakest part of of you for me. Yeah, definitely. He, he's not even. He just doesn't really do much. He's just kind of like along for the ride, and everything kind of happens to him, mm. and he like is there to witness all these vignettes and things that are happening around him, and has little to no agency. And he's like a end, total total non-entity isn't he he is and he doesn't yeah he, he's like oh I, I have to you know i have to make sure that that calvary's okay or like i have to i have to make sure that like you know she's at peace but in the end like he's not responsible for any of these things yeah yeah he's there as a pair of eyes for us to read through kind of thing yeah true yes because we experience everything through his eyes a lot of the time Mm, vantage point yeah it's yeah. funny you bring that up because like at the end of book one or like part one of this he just basically resigns himself to dying in a pit of fish which <laughs> I like, like, I, i've got a note saying and then he like they introduce all the cephalopods and then he falls into a pit and then just just stays there he's like sorry yeah. this is the this is the hill that i die on like this is where i'm gonna this is I'm, I'm done now this is the hill of dead fish that i die on. yeah i thought that was funny i also thought like his uncle was a really weak part of that story because like i've got a note here saying like it's it's concept in service uh or it's, it's story in, in service of concept where like the uncle doesn't give a shit that his house has been overrun by fish or i guess maybe that you can look at that retroactively and realize that oh he was in on it from the beginning or whatever but like yeah. he's borrowing this this you know seaside house from his uncle and he's like, oh, I heard sharks attacked it. And it's like, he doesn't really do anything. He's like not paying attention to the news. And I don't know. I thought some of that stuff was a little bit uh, ridiculous, but yeah. yeah, He's he's there to be the crazy scientist who, he's the cat. He's a catalyst, isn't he? He's there to escalate the situation by building his own machine. Well, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no. Um, are we, are we, are we finally, finally done? Yes, sorry. Yes. yes. <laughs> Anyone else have anything else they want to add? Yeah, it's just a small thing that um, I love <laughs> about, through these books. And um, one of my favorite uh, Junji Ito things is the. And it happens so often for every book, pretty much, but it's the uh, 
it's either when someone's noticed something weird uh, and they don't know what to say about it. So like they just look really concerned and their, and their speech bubble is the ellipses, uh, followed by the, uh, and it's usually on the, the page flip part as well, where we just get like a close up of their eyes and suddenly their eyes are like mega detailed and that he just has such a way of capturing just abject fear or uh, complete befuzzlement that it, it, I always get a kick out of it, even though it's used like a hundred times every comic. It's just really cool. And I, it, it's such a, in my head, as well as all the, the gross and super hyper detailed uh, grim stuff uh, and imagery that we get, it's the uh, surprise or like full abject horror um, reactions that I just love. I love seeing them in every book. Yeah, he's he's very good at that. It's the the facial expressions and things, which is just something that's just like absolutely perfect a lot of the time. Um, Can I just add something onto that? There, yeah. since you brought up eyes, Leon, um, <laughs> this is something that I learned through uh, from Anna, where there's an Italian expression where it's I, I don't know what the original Italian is, but the translation is to have the eyes of a boiled fish means when you <laughs> when you stare at someone lovingly with dreamy eyes is to have the eyes of a boiled fish. And all I could keep seeing in Gyor, like a really effective visual, is how Kaori sort of at an angle, so her, like, she she's 90 degrees sideways so that her eyes are on top of each other vertically and they're glazed over with, like, a fish eye. And all I could see was, like, she had boiled fish eyes. And all I kept hearing in my head was, like, she must be in love with somebody. And I just thought there, there's a weird dissonance between me knowing that Italian idiom and then the stuff that was on the page in Gyo. But then me thinking of what a boiled fish's eyes look like. It's, it, that's like a vacant stare, right? I guess, then, I think that, I think that's what it's driving at. Like when, yeah. when, you, when you stare dreamily into your partner's eyes from across a room and like they yeah. glaze, glaze over having been blinded by love. But yeah. Just, just okay. something to yeah. bear in mind next time you read that. Yeah. That makes sense, actually. I like that. And when oh, the, 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 the sideways eye thing, actually, that's just, because you get there's some fish that are actually like that, aren't there? Like cod well, and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, yeah, I I like that. Yeah, that's good. So that has been episode eighty of Ace Comicals, and we have discussed at length the career and work of Junji Ito. And I think I think uh, I think we've done that quite comprehensively, don't you? I think there's always more to say, but there's only so many hours in a day. Exactly. But yes, we, we can always do this again. And we could, we I mean, we to... could we could go on and on, but I think I think as far as we've gone right now, I think we've been pretty. Com- we've given people a, a pretty comprehensive dive <laughs> into what it is that makes a Junji Ito book. I think, um, and uh, with that, we shall close out. So this has been episode eighty of Ace Comicals. Um, Vicky, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for joining us again. And um, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, don't be a stranger. We'll have to get you on more often for for <laughs> more horror-based stuff and more horror-based conversations. It's always really nice having you on here. So oh, thank okay. you. It's M. Always- Night Shame Along. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, we should do the um, M. Night Shame Along, yeah. yes. <laughs> I'm down for it if we if we get to talk about Scary Jerry from from <laughs> And that's so funny, the whole thing. Um, yes. But yeah, it'd be, be lovely to see you guys again. So, um, 
you can find us at www.acecomicals, which is kind of the hub for everything we do. There will be um, links to all of our social media pages, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, we are most active on Twitter. So Twitter's the place to follow us, I guess, if you're going to follow us anywhere. Um, we can be reached on Twitter at Ace Comicals. Uh, you can get enjoy, you can join in with the conversation via Twitter or you can DM us. Um, you can ask us questions, uh, via the Twitter feed or you can send us an email directly to acecomicals at gmail.com. Um, you can find us to listen to us in a plethora of places. Uh, we are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Castbox, Castro, Overcast, Pocket Pocket Casts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Uh, Ray, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Monke at at M O O N K E H. And Leon, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at Leon Evera, and also um, I was guested on the most recent episode of Dynamite in the Brain. The anime podcast that we've mentioned and where the hosts are friends of the show, particularly uh, uh, Anthony Askew, who's been on a few times. And on that, we were discussing the final um, release of the Furikuri uh, revival that Adult Swim had going on a few years ago, where we discuss uh, Furikuri alternate. And I've done previous episodes with those guys Um Speaking about Fury Curry Progressive, and 10 years ago, around about, maybe nine years ago, we did an episode on Fury Curry, the original series. So if you're super interested about my thoughts on that bonkers anime, uh, check out those episodes on dynamiteinthebrain.com or on any normal podcatcher. And while you're trawling back through Dynamite in the Brain back catalogue, you'd be able to find a fair bit of me on there as well. Because <laughs> I'm on a fair few of their episodes, um, mostly discussing stuff like Ghost in the Shell. Um, but yeah, um, Vicky, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at VM Madden. Um, that's Vicky, V-I-C-K-I, Madden spelled the normal way. Yes. So, uh, if you also, I mean, if you're feeling that way inclined, you can, uh, donate the price of a coffee at our, um, Kofi page, which is kofi.com slash acecomicals. Um, any donations uh, go towards keeping the lights on and keeping the show running, basically. So keeping the website hosted and everything else it all goes to defray the costs of running the podcast. Um, if you stay tuned after this closeout, you will hear um, a short story that I have written. So uh, uh, fo- this is following on from last week. So last week's episode, I've kind of gotten into this new thing where I'm like trying out writing short stories. So last week's episode, I read out a short story that I had written called Salted Caramel. And this time uh, I've got another one for you guys, which is called Sour Yet Sweet. And uh, I've sent it to Ray and he's had a quick read of it. And what do you reckon, Ray? I really like it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing you to you know read this out to us. Because um, the one that you did for this, this is based on the ice cream man sort of ice cream flavors concept where you wrote salt, salted caramel based on Marvin's favorite ice cream. And I mentioned yeah. that I like stuff that's kind of kind of sweet and kind of sour, say like strawberry cheesecake or whatever. So you wrote a story around that. So I, I think people will enjoy that. Yes. So yeah, if you stay tuned after this, uh, I will be, yeah, reading my story. So yeah, you can check that out. So uh, thank you for joining us. That is Ace Comicals over and out. Ah, welcome to my attic. I am the Loft Dweller.
And for you, my friends, this evening I have a chilling tale from my library of the damned. Sour yet sweet. I awoke violently to a sharp synthetic bleating. It was a Monday morning, 7am. I got showered and put on my uniform and went downstairs to make coffee and contemplate the dreary mechanical monotony of the day ahead. My housemate John was already awake and dressed, seated on a stool in the kitchen looking out of the window with a blank stare. He looked clammy and was visibly shaking. I had a strange dream about... He stopped speaking as he turned to face me. I feel awful now. I'm not sure what's wrong with me. I tried to drink that, pointing at a coffee cup. But it was terrible. It was the wrong colour. Not sweet enough. Not sour enough. Had to spit it back up straight away. Just wouldn't stay down. Do, do we have any raspberries? Um, no, I replied. Maybe you should see a doctor instead of going to work. You really don't look well at all. I think raspberries will sort me out, he said. I need raspberries. Maybe I can stop and get some on my way to work. Your place stocks them, right? I offered to drive him as far as the supermarket where I worked, so he could stop off and grab some of the fruit he seemed to crave. I could see a wild look in his eyes, all the way along the road in the passenger seat, his gaze darting around and around, coupled with his twitching, disturbed demeanour as he shivered next to me. I could see sweat patches forming on his shirt. He complained occasionally of a dry mouth and stomach cramps. I could hear a loud groaning and roiling coming from inside him during the silence between his complaints. When we arrived at the shop, he could hardly wait for the car to stop moving before opening the door and rushing off into the car park, sprinting towards the main entrance. By the time I'd caught up with him, he'd loaded a basket full of plastic punnets of soft, glistening red fruit. You could see John's impatience as he waited to pay. I said goodbye to him and then made my way to the staff entrance at the back of the store to clock in. He didn't come home that evening, and I assumed he had stayed out with colleagues. The next time I saw him was the following morning. I awoke to find the bathroom covered with vomit, and the kitchen fridge stacked bursting, full of raspberries. John, sitting on the floor, covered with red juice, continuously stuffing his face. His eyes wide and his pupils dilated. Munching, juice running down his chin, all the while mumbling a sort of mantra to himself. So, so sour, so, so sweet. I stepped closer. He looked, still looked ill. Sweating and pale, he was wearing yesterday's clothes, now stained red with raspberry. I tried to get his attention, to ask him if he was okay, but there was no response. He appeared catatonic. All of a sudden, he got up from the mess of sticky crushed fruit on the floor and began to shuffle through the sea of empty plastic containers towards his room. I heard the door shut and the lock snap. I cleaned as much as I could. The following few days, I only ever saw my housemate in brief. Each time I did see him, he was well covered, wearing several layers, his posture slowly getting worse, and his movements more laboured, almost as if he were ageing rapidly. 
I would try to see if I could catch sight of any activity from the garden through his window positioned at the back of the house, but all attempts were in vain, as his curtains were firmly drawn at all times. I caught him returning to the house from the shop where he had purchased more raspberries, all the time muttering to himself about the sweet yet sour flavour and how nothing else was comparable. I could hear him rant late into the night about his insatiable hunger, the feel of the soft fruit in his hands and the delicate glistening red globules ordered so neatly in a pile full of juice. His praise and devotion to the raspberry seemed almost religious at this point, like he had become part of a cult. My concern for him increased, and I would bang on his door to try and get an answer, to see if he was okay, to maybe try and convince him to speak to a doctor. He would never open the door, and his reply was always the same, that he only needed more raspberries. I even reached out to some of his friends and family, but no one could get a decent response from him. Only his mother was successful in getting him to leave his room for anything other than more fruit. He turned violent when we denied him access to his beloved berries, and in an effort to calm and restrain him, some of his filthy red sticky blankets and items of clothing he had wrapped himself in began to loosen. We caught sight of his hands and his face, his skin now red and covered in glistening boils and blisters of all sizes, much like the globules that make up a raspberry. His hands were the same, and the flesh of his fingers had begun to fuse. He snatched the filthy rags and coverings back over his body, hunched and twisted. He squelched back up to his room. About a week and a half had passed. One morning, after a sleepless night listening to John's ranting through the walls, I found a thick, sticky red substance oozing from behind his door. Some of it had hardened like sap, creating a seal. I decided to go out and investigate from the back garden and look up at his window, knowing somehow this would be futile. The same substance seemed to be oozing from around the window and was dripping down the side of the house. By this point, I had already been making arrangements to live elsewhere, as I could not stand the constant madness any longer. I went back into the house and made my way up to his bedroom door to commence slamming and shouting with increasing volume for an answer, begging him to come out and seek help. At some point I lost my temper and hit the door way too hard. I was brought back to my senses by a wet thud and a splash, like the sound of a water balloon bursting. The door had split and the red liquid now oozed from the crack down the middle. I stepped back for a moment, then decided to begin another assault on the door, this time with the goal of gaining entry to see what was going on. The lock gave way at the behest of my foot as I kicked and burst open only so far before hitting something soft. I could hear a low moaning, delirious whispers about the soft sweet fruit. I squeezed my way into the room through the gap at the broken door. I was confronted with a sight, the strangeness of which would defy all I had ever known or learned. The walls were covered in thick red sap and blister-like bumps, similar to what I had seen briefly on John's hands and face. All of the possessions and furniture were broken and glued to the walls and floor with hardened red sap, almost like he had created a nest or a cocoon. In the centre of the room there was what looked like a giant misshapen raspberry. But on closer inspection, it was a man curled up into the fetal position, wrapped in a membrane of some sort. He was covered in red blisters with swollen pink skin. The flesh of his limbs looked melted and fused, his face almost no longer there. 
the features obscured by blisters. It was John. His one remaining eye slowly opened. I am sour, yet I am sweet, he said. 